We are joined today by Jesse Jenkins. Jesse is a postdoctoral environmental fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and also with the Harvard University Center for the Environment. And he recently earned his PhD in energy, or excuse me, engineering systems and technology and policy at MIT. Uh, thanks for being here, Jesse. Thanks, it's a pleasure. So I want to talk a little bit about a, a couple of papers that you've uh, published quite recently at the end of 2018 that uh, model ways we might get to a zero emission or net zero emission electricity system. This, you've, uh, in a big way, I think, joined an existing debate, our community of scholars that are trying to model this. People may be most familiar with the dispute between Mark Jacobson of Stanford and various co-authors on the one hand and Chris Clack and various co-authors on the other that try to uh, tackle this same uh, objective. Can you talk a little bit about how your model is different from and or adds to that literature? Yeah, so we're really motivated by a lot of the same questions that I think other scholars have been here, which is that if you look at the overall uh, challenge of decarbonizing the global economy or the overall economy to try to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. The electricity sector plays a very central role in all of that, um, both because it's a major source of emissions that we have to eliminate, but also because most studies that try to decarbonize the overall economy rely on electricity to expand and electrify other sectors like heating and transportation and industry, um, maybe even roughly doubling in a lot of scenarios. So kind of this twin challenge of getting emissions down to zero in electricity and also growing low-carbon electricity supplies overall so that we can help uh, electrify and consequently decarbonize um, other sectors and end-use activities. So our question for this paper really was, how do we cost-effectively reach zero carbon? Because if we don't do, uh, we don't, if we reach zero carbon uh, but fail to do so co uh, cost-effectively, we're going to raise electricity prices and probably slow the substitution of electricity for other fuels, um, which has implications for the overall decarbonization effort. Or if we fail to fully decarbonize electricity, then we'll likely fail to decarbonize the economy as a whole because we won't be using zero carbon fuels to um, help power our economy. So that was sort of the overarching question. And um, in the background, what we've seen over the last, say, six or ten years is a substantial and sustained decline in the price of wind, solar PV, and lithium-ion batteries. And so one of the big questions we kind of were facing and I think we've been grappling with in the literature writ large is how far do those three technologies take us? towards our zero carbon goals, uh, or do we, and do we need more um, options and more low carbon solutions? And so that's what this paper really tried to explore. So to do that, we used the detailed electricity system optimization model that we developed that basically plans the lowest cost mix of generation and storage resources needed to meet some future electricity demand projected for, say, 2050. Um, and subject to all kinds of detailed engineering constraints about how power plants operate and storage devices operate um, over chronological time periods every hour uh, for a full year, uh, and different emissions limits or environmental constraints. So in this paper, we basically steadily ratcheted down an emissions constraint on carbon dioxide emissions um, from uh, basically 200 grams per kilowatt hour, which is about a 60% reduction from current levels, down to zero, um, all the way down to zero emissions. So we kind of, with interim points in between, so let me interrupt you there. So would it be fair to say that you chose, you assumed a certain level of reliability if it's desirable, and then you uh, you you made a, you looked at different rates of and uh, magnitudes of declines in emissions, 
and then tried to achieve the most cost-effective or looked at what was most cost-effective within within those constraints? That's exactly right, yeah. Great way to summarize the, the models, of constraints, and objective. Yeah. And how is that approach different from what Jacobson et al. did? Yeah, so what Jacobson et al. were doing was more of a, um, at least one way to look at it is more of a thought experiment, a what-if. So say I want to power the global, the U.S. economy uh, with only wind, water, and solar, is WWS is their uh, slogan. So that wind power, uh, hydropower, uh, solar PV and solar thermal, um, and a little bit of geothermal and wave and tidal power as other water technologies, but they play a pretty minor role in their strategy. And so it, it sort of starts, there's two papers they put out, the first of which um, was basically a spreadsheet accounting to say, all right, how much energy do I need from all of these different technologies? Where would I put it across the country? How much would that likely cost? Um, and could we conceivably you know, build that kind of uh, infrastructure? And the second one was more of a reliability check to say, okay, if I model the operation of that uh, assumed mix of resources, uh, uh, how do I balance demand in every time period? I think five-minute intervals um, or maybe in one-minute intervals uh, to make sure the supply always equals demand despite the fact that wind and solar output is varying all over the you know, place from different uh, hours to months to, to years. Um, and then how much additional storage might I need to um, make sure that that demand balance works that it wasn't in the original roadmap. So that was sort of their method. So it was not an optimization study. The question wasn't what's the least cost or most affordable or most pragmatic way to decarbonize the U.S. It was would this strategy be possible, and if so, what would it take? Um, and, and in that sense, we learn a lot from those papers uh, about what it would take to build a um, 100% wind, water, solar system, and from a number of other studies that have come out in a similar vein uh, over the, the last five years or so. My recollection is that he, he, they also um, made a rough cost calculation in the sense that, they, that this would be less, they argue that this would be less costly than the cost of the of a alternative traditional system plus social costs. Yes, exactly. So they, they calculate what, what business as usual cost of a fossil fuel, you know, primarily energy electricity system and energy system would be um, out to 2050 and, and then add in all of the estimates of the social damages from air pollution and, and, and climate change um, that are eliminated by that kind of strategy. What they didn't look at, importantly, is what alternative strategies are there to reach the same kind of goals? Uh -huh. Zero uh, carbon, uh, dramatic reductions, if not eliminations, of air pollution um, through other mixes of resources. The other big distinction I should point out is that they are looking, that, that paper does look at all economy wide emissions, um, so they're trying to eliminate all uh, uh, carbon across uh, heating, transportation, industry, and um, and energy. Uh, our paper looks only at the electricity sector, assuming that it's going to play a bigger role in that broader thing. So there are okay. some boundary differences in the two papers. Right. So your paper, which I should have mentioned, is in the November uh, 2018 issue of Juul, um, is, is attempting to sort of say what's the best way to get to zero or net zero. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about uh, how, how you set up that analysis. Can you just give us a brief description of, of how it worked? Yeah, so basically, as I said before, we were kind of questioning how far can wind, uh, solar, and batteries take us. And so we set up an experiment uh, where for each of our cases, um, so same set of technology assumptions, same region that we're you know, modeling the power grid for, and same emissions limit, we'll model two different runs. One where we have only uh, solar, wind, batteries, and then conventional natural gas power plants. 
and another where we also have a set of low-carbon firm technologies. Firm meaning not uh, technologies that are not weather dependent, that can be used any time of the year and can generate power for any length of time. Uh, and that includes in our study, uh, we explicitly looked at nuclear power, uh, natural gas with carbon capture and storage, and biomass, solid biomass or, or biogas. Other options include geothermal or very large reservoir hydro systems that have big um, uh, reservoirs that can uh, can last through seasonal uh, droughts and things like that. Um, and that's about it. <laughs> that's sort of our list of firm options available. So we were looking at the kind of main, most scalable ones that are not as ge uh, geographically specific. Uh, and so we have a, a sort of with and without analysis. What happens if you include these technologies in the mix? How, does the model pick them? How much of the capacity of each resource does it build? Uh, and what does that do to the system cost and other characteristics? And what did you find? So what we found is that across a huge range of scenarios we modeled, since we really don't know what technology costs are going to be out to 2050, um, and this is another area where our paper, I think, adds a lot to the literature, is we weren't just saying, let's assume one scenario about future technology costs. We're saying, we really have no idea how cheap will wind and solar get, whether we can build a new nuclear power plant for any lower cost than we do today, um, how will batteries be much cheaper in the future. So we had a range of different costs for each of our technologies, and we did a bunch of different combinations of those uh, to, to create a, a number of different scenarios. So I think it was about uh, 17 different combinations of technology assumptions. Each of those technology assumptions we would run in two different systems, a northern climate that used weather patterns uh, data from New England and a more southern climate from Texas data. Uh, and then we would run that under uh, different emissions limits, as I mentioned. And so in all, it was about a 1,000 different cases, including some sensitivities that we added that it looked at the role of transmission and demand flexibility and longer duration storage also. Uh, and across all those scenarios, what we found was that the least cost, most affordable path to zero emissions always included a substantial role for one or more firm low carbon resources. Uh, and that's a notable finding. So what it says is that here is a role in the low-carbon team that is important to fill by some technology. Now, it changes across the scenarios which technology plays that role, uh, depending on what we assume is cheaper. It could be nuclear in some. could be natural gas with CCS and others. In others, it's biogas. And since the technologies have different economics and have different interactions with other technologies, it changes the whole mix to some degree as to which, which technology you slot into that role. But what's consistent across all of the uh, scenarios is that having a firm low-carbon resource in the mix lowers costs by anywhere between 10 and 65% across the scenarios of reaching our zero emissions goals. Um, and it plays a substantial role uh, across any scenario with less than 50 grams per kilowatt hour emissions limits. That's about a 90% cut from today's average U.S. grid. And can you, is there a way to sort of translate that, those percentage reductions in cost into a, a more tangible number? How yeah, so... Um, Across all the scenarios, costs do go up as we decarbonize, as we, you know, internalize the, the, the challenge of reducing uh, CO2 and not dump that into the atmosphere for free. Electricity generation costs in the model do go up. Um, they go up uh, from about $50, uh, 50 or $60 per megawatt hour in a kind of greenfield case where we're building everything from scratch. Um, that's higher than today's 
average wholesale prices, which are more like $35, but that includes a lot of capital we've already paid off. So this is assuming we're rebuilding everything for the future. The baseline is somewhere around $50 per megawatt hour. Uh, and that goes up to about $70 or $75, if I remember correctly, in the cases with um, firm low-carbon resources. And it rises relatively gradually or linearly as we go towards zero. In the cases where we eliminate uh, or remove the firm low-carbon options, what we see instead is a uh, rapid nonlinear increase in the cost of reaching uh, of our system as we get down to the stricter emissions limits beyond 100 grams per kilowatt hour uh, or 80 or so percent reductions. And, and those costs go up, uh, uh, you know, from anywhere from 90 to $300 per megawatt hour, okay. if I remember correctly. All right. So, and is the central intuition here that uh, without the firm low-carbon resources, you just have to build so much extra uh, intermittent yeah. generation and batteries that it becomes... Yeah, that's exactly what, what happens if you're trying to meet all of your energy needs with, with variable wind and solar and then battery storage or demand flexibility uh, is that you have variation on both demand and supply. And you have periods where you have very low combined wind and solar output. You, know, you have a high pressure front that sits across the region for five to you know, ten days in the winter with low solar output, for example or a high pressure front in the summer where you do have solar output, but it goes away at night and your demand is really high. And so the net effect of that is, you know, several days or weeks where you um, have very low average output from your wind and solar facilities. And so in order to get through those periods, you have to build a lot of wind and solar so that even though they're producing a trickle, the total output from those wind and solar farms is enough. And you need a bunch of energy storage capacity that was charging during times when you had an abundance of wind and solar um, and can discharge that output over a sustained period of time. Uh, and that's just not something that uh, battery storage, the you know, lithium-ion technology that we have available today, is good at doing. Um, mm -hmm. It's best suited for fast bursts of output within a day and kind of moving power around for a few hours, but not for days or weeks, which is what um, the challenge you have in, in those kinds of environments. And so the end result is you build three to eight times as much power generating and storage capacity as the peak demand in the power system. Uh, and you use all of that capacity at a fairly low utilization rate um, because you really are just having a bunch of it around for that, um, say, rainy day or not windy right. day um, when you really need it. Uh, and so much of that capacity is poorly utilized and, and it gets very expensive as a result. In contrast, if you have firm low-carbon resources, you still have quite a lot of wind and solar, a much bigger role for those technologies than we do today across all of our scenarios. Um, but you have an important complement to the weather-dependent wind and solar and the shorter-duration energy-constrained storage in that firm technology, which isn't weather-constrained, isn't energy-constrained, and can be operated whenever you need it. And so you have a technology that is there and ready to get you through those difficult periods, uh, and, and that makes the whole system uh, utilization much higher. So everything you build is used at a higher utilization rate when you do that. Um, and that lowers the overall cost of delivering energy, and it keeps it from this sort of spiraling cost as you go towards zero carbon. Yeah, what I really liked about this um, approach is that it's agnosticism about technology mm -hmm. and, and really humility about sort of what the cost of each technology will be in the future sort of leaves open lots of potential solutions, which sort of matches the way uh, the system has evolved historically, right? We, we, we've been terrible at predicting where when the great technological leap forwards and cost leap forwards are going are gonna to happen. And so um, this sort of ar argues or illustrates perhaps the value of being agnostic in that way, and including the part about uh, what you said a second ago about how different, uh, different low-carbon firm resources perform better under different sets of assumptions. Uh, that that was an interesting element of it. 
to, to me. Yeah, and, and it's sort of uh, the, the big difference is that uh, across the three technologies we looked at, we have different combinations of fixed and variable or fuel costs. So nuclear plants, for example, have very low variable costs and high fixed costs. And that means that they uh, are, while they're much more flexible and we model them as flexible than a lot of people give nuclear plants credit for, um, they still want to run them at a relatively high, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a relatively high uh, utilization rate throughout the year. Because when you ramp them down, you just don't save that much energy and fuel costs, um, or save that much energy or fuel costs. Uh, and so they, in scenarios where you have nuclear in the mix, you get less wind and solar in the final mix. Um, because wind and solar, we classify them as fuel-saving resources in the study because primarily, once they're at high penetration levels, they, you, the times when you need firm capacity are the times when you don't have any wind or solar output. So they, they have very little role in capacity substitution, but have a high energy substitution value. So when you've got the wind and solar, their fuel is free. You can back off something like a natural gas plant or a nuclear plant that has a fuel cost and save all that money for the system. And that's the role they play in the portfolio. When you pair that with mostly gas, there's a high fuel saving value. When you pair it with nuclear, the fuel saving value falls. And so the, uh, the optimized mix includes more nuclear, less wind and solar than, than in cases with natural gas, which has a relatively high fuel cost, or biomass or biogas, which have an even higher fuel cost. So a lot of, you know, what we see across the cases is the sort of pairing of a firm technology with a different balance of firm and uh, of variable and capital costs uh, with different shares of wind and solar. And, and so that leads to a spread um, of the final share of wind and solar in our mix from anywhere from 40%-ish to 90% of the mix across our scenarios, uh, which is a huge range. So, you know, I think that reflects the sort of fundamental uncertainty that we face today about predicting the kind of optimal role or lowest cost role um, for wind and solar in the future, largely due to the fact that we just don't know which technologies are going to be best suited to fill this final role in the low-carbon team mm -hmm. and complement uh, the batteries and, and wind and solar that we have available today. And depending on how that uncertainty unfolds, uh, the role for wind and solar might change. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Let me close with a, the kind of question people ask in a job interview, uh, <laughs> which is, if you were a critic of, of, your, of this analysis, what, what would you say about it? Well, so I, I've engaged with a few critics. Um, I'm, as some of my, these listeners might know, I'm on Twitter a lot, and so it's a great way to get feedback from your critics, um, uh, some of whom are more civil than others, but usually are very helpful in either case. Um, and so the, the one critic, criticism that we get for this study um, is that we don't include, um, well, two, I'd say. There, there are two limitations, and we're very clear about them in the paper. One is that this, we're modeling the electricity sector only, and so we're not modeling its interactions with um, with heating or transportation, where there are some possibilities for greater flexibility across the different, um, the different sectors, although there is also a set of, of new challenges that are also raised that um, don't, doesn't necessarily make it an easier challenge, but it does make it a different challenge. We try to address that in our sensitivities by including um, cases where we have a lot of flexible demand that could represent things like electric vehicle charging or um, HVAC systems in buildings where you can move around when you consume energy. And so we do model a case, for example, where we have up to 20% of our demand can be shifted around for free for, for eight hours. Um, and a bunch more can be curtailed for different costs. So we try to kind of get at that in an abstract way, but we are explicitly modeling linkages with other sectors. And the other is that we're not including very low cost, long duration energy storage technologies that might become available in the future. Um, we did do a couple sensitivity cases with longer duration storage, 24 hour and 100 hour duration storage options, uh, but they weren't low enough cost to fundamentally change the results. 
So we've uh, started a follow-up paper to this um, that is in midst right now where we're explicitly looking at that question of long-duration storage uh, and trying to discern what is the combination of costs, uh, efficiencies, uh, asset life, self-discharge rate um, that you would need from an energy storage technology, generic energy storage technology, to act as a true substitute for firm low-carbon resources. Uh, generation sources. So what we saw in our paper is that the 100-hour storage, even at the cost, the very low cost that we put in, wasn't enough to say substitute for all of the firm generation. So we're pushing those boundaries further and saying how cheap does the technology need to be to change our fundamental insight here, which is that instead of having a firm generation role, we'll have a firm storage technology that plays that final role on the team. And if that uh, technology becomes viable, it could enable 100% of your generation to come from variable resources like wind and solar. But what we're seeing is that that's going to require probably two orders of magnitude lower costs than what we're likely to see for technologies like lithium-ion batteries. And so that puts you in a whole different category for cost and performance uh, and a range of technologies that um, are much more uncertain than uh, the battery storage technologies we have today. Two orders of magnitude lower than your low assumption in this model. Yeah, so we're talking about a few dollars per kilowatt hour installed cost for the storage component of the cap of the cost. There's a, the power component is separate, and we're optimizing both. Um, whereas in here, we looked at all the way down to, for the longest duration storage, I think about $70 per megawatt hour. So one more under magnitude below huge, that. Yeah. For contrast, current lithium-ion systems are probably being installed more in the $300 to $500 per kilowatt hour range. Yeah. So two orders of magnitude cheaper than current lithium-ion costs. Another order of magnitude cheaper than our lowest future costs that we include in our sensitivities. Um, and different characteristics around charging uh, efficiencies, discharging efficiencies, the uh, self-discharge rate. Because it's a technology, it's a role for storage that's fundamentally different than what we're using storage for uh, today and what we consider in our model, which is as a fast burst resource right. within the day for you know, shorter sustained output when it's um, most valuable. Great. Well, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. Thanks. It's been fun. Okay.